This episode of the Digiday Podcast is sponsored by Kiwi. If you're a publisher, you should know Kiwi. Publishers like the New York Times, Condé Nast, National Geographic, and BBC use Kiwi to distribute content profitably on Facebook. Learn more at kiwi.co. That's K-E-Y-W-E-E dot co. Kiwi, making stories relevant and powerful. Hi, welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. This week, we are joined by Eli Pariser. Eli is the CEO of Upworthy. We're going to discuss clickbait, the ad model beyond display advertising, and of course, Trump and the filter bubble. Uh, One note, this was recorded prior to Facebook's move to deprioritize news, so it's not a subject that we are going to address. Eli, welcome. Thanks for having me on. So Upworthy, I can remember Upworthy. I remember Forbes directly. It was a christened you guys like the fastest growing media company of all time or website i forget what how they and then all of a sudden upworthy became the the poster child for why you shouldn't rely on facebook because you had caught this tiger by the tail um when when social publishing was somewhat new and a lot of people assume upworthy has gone away and yet you have not gone anywhere we're here we're doing great <laughs> actually um so give us the uh, give us the update um on upworthy yeah. So, um, you know, Upworthy, we started it uh, five years ago with a mission to do storytelling that would really connect with people around important topics, things that, that really matter in the world. And um, we always believed that uh, doing that where people were, which was increasingly, you know, social and especially Facebook, made a lot of sense. And so, you know, we really kind of started the company focused on this kind of visual um emotional storytelling that was um connected people with something important or powerful um and and left them with a sense of hope and um you know round and that strategy worked like way better at first than we ever imagined like um the story that i mean how good i mean you went from zero to like what like 50 million we were reaching yeah we were reaching tens of millions of people you know a month uh, in year two with a team of like 20 people or something. Right. Yeah. And, um, and it was, it was, it was cool. And at the same time, you know, we always said to ourselves, like, this is like, you know, you're featured in the app store on Apple. And the good thing is you get in front of a whole bunch of people, people get to connect with who you are. Um, and if it's good, then they'll stick around and they'll develop a long-term relationship. And, um, if it's not, then they'll, you know, they'll move on. Uh, so, um, so you never thought it was going to last. No, we never, I mean, we thought like it's, it's an opportunity. Okay. How could you get in front of a couple hundred million people in a year, uh, any other way and, um, do something horrific. (laughs) Yeah. We thought about, you know, we thought about sort of uh, crazy stunts, but we ended up going to Facebook. Um, and um, you know, I think where we are now is um, we, we did create this connection with uh, uh, an audience that's a core audience of, you know, tens of millions of folks. And, um, and better yet, um, we've actually figured out how to build a business around that, that that's self-sustaining. And um, our revenue has been growing, uh, you know, hugely this year. Every quarter is better than the last. And 
um, were past the break-even point in this last quarter, which is, you know, something that's really exciting, especially. Something to in, celebrate. It really is in this moment. Everyone celebrates digital... venture capital funding <laughs> because it's a public affirmation yeah. of sorts, but it's a giant mortgage too. Totally. Um, but, you know, they never celebrate actually crossing over break-even. I mean, internally, I think yeah. it's, it's a big deal, but externally it's not. And for me, you know, it was especially important because imagine, you know, you have this company that's full of idealists, people who really are here because they believe in the power of storytelling and the power to make media a better place. And I was always, you know, kind of trying to sell everybody on um, if we don't build a sustainable business model that actually works behind this thing, then we can do a lot of great, you know, stories and we can get them in front of people. But at some point, you know, the party stops and... Mm -hmm we don't get to go forward. And, and, um, and so crossing that line, um, you know, we're not by any means like, uh, sitting back and, you know, uh, retiring, but, uh, but crossing that line is meaningful because it means we can actually like, we found a model that lets us do what we're here to do. So let me go through a few things that people often will think about, uh, yeah. upworthy and you can tell me whether they're fair or unfair. Right. Okay. Upward, it's all unfair. Up, just... Upworthy, Upworthy gave us clickbait, which before fake news was the thing everyone labeled um, things that they didn't like. But um, emotionally connecting with people, obviously this works on Facebook. You can't believe what happened next. A lot of people blame Upworthy for that becoming ubiquitous. So, you know, we we were early in that whole I say a lot process. of people when I mean me. Yeah, no, know. I know you blame <laughs> And, uh, you know, I think we, we were absolutely looking for any way to, uh, to, to take these stories about climate change or about police violence or whatever, and get people to engage with them in an environment where, um, you know, most of the content is a lot more sort of sells itself a lot more. If you've got some dude surfing off his roof easy to click on because what you're really looking to do is alleviate boredom. If you say, here's a deconstruction of the American healthcare system. Like there's some portion of people who will naturally gravitate toward that over the guy surfing off his roof. But those aren't the people that we were trying to reach. And um, so we did, you know, so we were experimenting with all sorts of stuff to try to figure out like, how do we actually bring this content to a lot of people in a way that they'll engage with? And the proof point for us was always not that they would click because we actually didn't have a uh, display ad based system. We didn't make money when people clicked. We, we, we do branded content. So uh, we make money when people, uh, you know, view that branded content, but they, they view it in our stream. Um, so, you know, the, the point wasn't to get people to click. The point was we're delivering them experience that they like enough that they want to share. And uh, that was the, the thing that we held ourselves to because the whole vir virality model didn't work for us otherwise. And, um, so I think the thing that people, you know, missed in that was there was a lot of people who came along, saw that that headline mm -hmm. style was great at getting people to click and use it to make some money for themselves. And you let uh, the genie out of the bottle and now you're being blamed for other people using. Well, I mean, and, and it's not like I don't cringe too at some because of it started headlines. being used for the guy who was surfing off the roof. Totally. It yeah. wasn't being used to you educate people that, you know, what roof about climate change. Next. Yeah. yeah. No, and you it, won't believe what happened. Now. And usually it's, it, it's, you know, gravity takes, right. takes its toll. Gravity is <laughs> the end. Um, uh, no, but, but, but what I will say is I've, I would rather be a company 
that is trying to innovate and trying to figure out how do we come up with new creative ways to engage people than not. And I think that, um, you know, we've seen a lot of these trends coming Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, sometimes we'll hit it exactly right. And sometimes we'll do something that annoys other people, annoys ourselves, and we'll stop doing it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the, the thing that we did do was we recruited people. We, we felt early on, I mean, I actually kind of wish we had, we, we had this long debate about whether we were going to launch without a homepage. Like you just go to upworthy.com and it would send you to some random article. And the point of that was we really wanted to be focused on where are people actually consuming our content, which we felt like was going to be social feeds and not this model of like, um, someone sitting down at their compact PC and typing in upworthy.com. Mm-hmm. So, so everything was built around that, including like, if we want to get people to go to our homepage, that's actually going to be our social feed. And so we promoted that pretty heavily and we did pop up a box when you right. came that said like, Hey, we've got a social feed. So one of the other things uh, that gets pinned on Upworthy is that, I, like that thing I said, was that it's a it's a poster child for going all in on platforms, and this is why you shouldn't go all in on platforms because look at what happened to Upworthy. Right, we're profitable. Um, <laughs> no, uh, it, I mean, look, would I recommend to anyone that they only do you know sort of platform focused, pro, you know, uh, a media company? Like, probably not. But I also think like in a world where people are spending, you know, whatever the number is now, five hours a week or whatever it is on Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, And if you look at other platforms, you know, you add in a bit too. um, It's crazy not to be really good at that because that's, you know, we may not like that those are the gatekeepers to people's attention, but they are. And, um, So to me, and I think, you know, this gets to, well, what is your ambition? Because I think if you're trying to build a relationship with a relatively small, discrete group of people in a niche, then I think there are actually some other, you know, really powerful strategies that are available to you. Yeah. For Upworthy, um, you know, our mission was to reach a much broader audience of people who care about what's going on in the world, but aren't going to tune into aren't news junkies, aren't going to tune into, you know, a a news site every day. That, that segment we felt like was really well served. And, um, so you're talking about hundreds of millions of people. I mean, I think ultimately we would love to reach hundreds of millions of people. I don't think that our core audience now is a hundred million people, but, um, but I think, uh, if you're trying to reach, you know, people who are outside of that news junkie group, then the strategy is different and absolutely platforms have to be part of your strategy because that's where those people are. Okay. So Facebook is still very important for us. For yeah, you. Totally. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, uh, it's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just the way <laughs> that the thing. world, it, you know, it's sort of like the gravity point. Like it doesn't help to say that gravity doesn't exist. It does exist. It exerts a strong force and you have to work with it. And would we prefer that it didn't exist? Like, Maybe, but that's not the world that we're living in. So, um, you know, my view is you have to, you have to be good at Facebook and then you can talk about, you know, sort of how you build around that and build a sustainable business around Mm -hmm. it. But, um, but it's not, you know, but, but there's no choice not to be if you're trying to reach a a lot of people. So how did you get to a sustainable business? Because again, you, you never went for display ads. 
So, which actually maybe it was a good. We've we've just turned them on in the last year, <clears throat> but but it, it was a really good thing not to build a model that was dependent on them. Right. I mean, I think that's where we departed from some of the other sites that were finding a lot of traffic on Facebook. And this was sort of why that story of... This was an arbitrage game to some degree. For some people, yeah. right. But it wasn't for us because we weren't making any money on the page view. Um, and at the time, I can tell you, we had conversations that were like, holy crap, we're leaving... You know, we would do the math and be yes. like, why are we leaving $10,000 a day of free revenue on the table? Um, but I think actually it kind of led us out of that uh, moment because, um, you know, we weren't dependent on that cash for our company. And instead we were focused on building an advertising product that was going to be, you know, great branded content around social purpose. And, um, it took us a while, frankly, to like figure that out. But what's interesting is, you know, sort of our, our traffic story and our revenue story, if you were to graph them, it almost looks like there's no relationship between those two things. Like, it, it was so us. So your revenue grew and your traffic went down. Our traffic, you know, was in this sort of app store peak, and then it kind of like dropped for for a bit, and now it's it kind of down. now it's stable. Right, but I mean, from the peak, you know, I, I look. A lot of people showed the sort of upworthy traffic yeah. chart, um, and there's definitely it's like a ski bump. Uh, the on-site traffic was. Yes. And, and then I think the second piece of that story is, and then we got really good at Facebook video, and that was another you know, another way that we were reaching a lot of people and building our relationship with our audience. Um, so you know, if you actually look at sort of how many people we were, were engaging with our content, mm-hmm. um, it went up, it went down, and then it went up again. Um, but it didn't go up on site. Right. So as someone with a lot of experience in, um, you know, the highs and uh, maybe not the lows, but the in-betweens of, of relying on Facebook, how are you approaching the hallowed pivot to video? So, um, well, I, I should say, like, we've always believed that video was important because okay. we knew that, it, I mean, I think this is the thing that gets lost in some of this conversation, which is like, different groups of people like consuming media different ways, which sounds obvious, but I think among people like you and me, and probably a lot of the folks who are listening to the podcast, um, I prefer text. You probably prefer text for most things. Like it's a natural way that we would like to receive information. What gets lost in that pivot to video conversation is it's not actually like clearly by evidence, Americans mostly prefer to receive news by video. That's how most Americans receive their news right now. You mean TV? Uh, TV, yeah. Okay. Um, and increasingly digital, but TV is the, the biggest chunk of that. And so um, it depends on who you want to be talking to. And I think if you want to talk to people like you and me, mm-hmm. text is a better strategy. But but th- there's something about that conversation that leaves that suggests that text is better for everyone. And I think from evidence a lot of people like consuming storytelling through video. And so if you're from our point of view, and you still want to make people feel things. I mean, video is better to, to elicit emotions than text. Right. Um, broadly speaking. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think you have to work harder and be better with text in order to, to reach the same emotional, you know, uh, payoff. Um, 
but so it, I think my view is on the one hand, a lot of the snark is right on and it is not a strategy just to all of a sudden be filling everyone's Facebook feed with, with junky, you know, with a dude surfing off his roof. Um, on the other hand, like if we're going to be user centered and we're mm-hmm. going to say like, how do we actually serve this audience? People do actually want video and they want it more than some of us who prefer text would like to mm-hmm. think or would, would, would want ourselves. Well, I think one of the issues is some of the pivots to video have really been a pivot to, to, um, you know, hands making food, um, mm-hmm. or, or just any sort of weird products, um, things that aren't really, in, and they can come from news brands. It's fine. Right. But, um, you know, they'll do that to jack up the numbers. Totally. And, and that's why, I mean, it, it, in a way it's sort of an over, it, it's like talking about a pivot to digital. Like, well, what are you ta- like in this day and age, what are we talking about? There's lots of different flavors of what digital might be. Mm-hmm. Some of which are a good idea. Some of which are not a good idea. Um, so I think for us, um, our, our bet is that if we're delivering to people a video that is meaningful to them, that inspires them in a moment when things are pretty dark um, and gets them connected with bigger things that are happening, that that's a, that's a, that's a service that's worth offering. Um, but we really try to stay away from, you know, the, the just kind of pure viral schmaltz. And this is mostly through Facebook? Mostly through Facebook, yeah. Quick break to hear from our sponsor. You've probably heard that Facebook is changing its newsfeed. Distributing your content cost-effectively on Facebook is more important than ever. Kiwi helps hundreds of publishers like the New York Times, Condé Nast, National Geographic, and BBC do just that. Whether you're looking to drive more traffic, increase video viewership, drive subscriptions, or sell products online, Kiwi can find and target the audiences that matter most and at the best price. Visit kiwi.co to learn more. That's K-E-Y-W-E-E. Kiwi, making stories relevant and powerful. Thank you for your support, Kiwi. Check them out. So um, how do you make sure that you're building a brand in that feed? Because I think one of the other questions out there is, does any of this really add up to much when you know everyone has a big number um, not everyone, but a lot of people have big numbers that they brag about, uh, when it comes to their Facebook feeds, um, and video. But the question is if they went away tomorrow, would people miss them? Like, are they building true brands? Right. And I think, I mean, for us, you know, we, I think part of that's like, what do you stand for? What are you about? Um, and I think you see a lot of brands that are pretty diffuse and pretty like, what we're do you gonna, want us to stand have, for? Yeah, what do you... Yeah. It's like that... You remember do? that Seinfeld episode where Kramer uh, acted... He, he took over the movie line phone and people were people were <laughs> sort of entering what movie? He's like, why don't you tell me what you want? Right. Yeah, no. I mean, I think there's... You can definitely get into this kind of circle. And for, for us, um, you know, I think we, we started with a pretty clear set of kind of values and principles that were going to guide what we what we talk about, what we don't talk about, how we talk about it and to what end. And there are some people who aren't going to like that, um, either because they don't like the style or they don't like what those values are. Um, but I think for the people who do, it becomes an important part of, of their day and their, their life. Um, and I run into people, you know, all the time who say like, you know, Oh, you're, you're, you're doing upworthy. Like I like look forward to those moments 
because, you know, it's pretty bleak out there. And you mm-hmm. guys are the people who are showing me like, oh, something better is possible, change is possible, and I can feel a little more hopeful. And to me, like, like I'll be honest, like, there's, there's a way that, uh, you know, there, there's a sweetness at our at our worst that I sort of like look at and, and go like, ah, it's like a little too sweet. It's like, I wish it was a little more of a complicated flavor. Um, but when I step back and think about the role that we're playing for those people, giving them these moments of, uh, you know, feeling a little more hopeful about humanity, like that's important. And um, that's a powerful thing to mm-hmm. be doing. And so to me, you know, we, we try to avoid the like pure, pure sugar. Um, but, but we do feel like it's in this moment, like you got to give people some reason right. to care and to, so you're to not part of the, the sort of outrage industrial complex. No, there's I mean, a lot, there's a lot I used of outrage. to, well, well, look, and I mean, there's a lot to be outraged at. There, there is. And, and I used to run move on and that was like, you know, we, we were an activist group and I, I've, I, I think that's incredibly important right now, actually. But for Upworthy, we were talking about something different, which is I think there are a lot of people who, when they think about whether to engage with what's going on in the world or not, that's a genuinely, like, that's a hard question because they know that they're going to get punished for it. Like, you're going to read an article and you're just going to feel like, oh my God, we are doomed. And um, that's a hard thing to ask of people. (laughs) And, um, so I think for us, you know, the question was always like, how do you take something like climate change, which is probably the topic where it's most easy to read any piece of content about and feel like humanity's over, Mm -hmm. um, and make it something that isn't like, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. But it's like, this is actually totally solvable. And there are smart, wonderful people who are working on it. And here's something cool that they're doing. There's something beyond that polar bear video that everyone saw. Totally, because the polar bear, you look at the polar bear, it's depressing. I don't think that creates any kind of change. I think that just people go back feeling worse than they did before they they saw that story. And, but I think if we can be the place where people feel, I mean, this was actually, I'll tell you, you know, so we haven't talked much about the kind of like behavioral science side of what we do, Mm -hmm. but for, for me, you know, kind of grounding everything we were doing in the social science of like, how do you actually reach people and get them to care and get them to do something was important for, for us. And one of the things that we found in some research that we did with the Gates Foundation was that, um, you know, there's, there's a single variable that was most likely to yield people actually like doing something about a story they saw after they saw it. And, um, it wasn't actually, I, I would have predicted that it was sort of like, um, their, you know, the emotional tenor that they had. Um, but, but the variable was actually this variable of empowerment. And it was a sense of like, do I have any role to play here or not? Like, is this something that's happening far away from me? Or do I actually come away from this piece of content feeling like I could be part of this story? And, um, if you do come away from something feeling like you can be part of it, then you're much more likely to actually do something about it. So for me, you know, the question is how do you like create those kinds of experiences where people walk away, not feeling like I'm going to turn it all off, but actually feeling like, no, I want to, I want to engage. I want to get busy, you know, doing, doing something good. Okay. So let, let's talk about Trump. Do you yeah. mind? 
Uh, <laughs> how can we avoid it? Did you feel at all watching, you know, the election and what's unfolded um, afterwards? What you're talking about now, I mean, that was sort of weaponized to some degree by Trump and perhaps by other people in order to lead us to where we are right now, right? I mean, like like what you're talking about and using social science and using these triggers and stuff, wasn't that ex- weren't those exact same tactics just used to different means? I don't think so. I mean, I think if what you're saying is Trump was good at using, at feeding off people's emotion, what's the... I mean, I guess what what I mean is uh, with the use of Facebook in particular, mm-hmm. it's gotten a lot of attention um, uh, and its role in the election is a lot of these things with the spread of memes and with the things that the alt-right media uh, sphere has been doing, a lot of it feeds off the same stuff you're talking about. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think it's very different to appeal to people's fears and racism and bigotry and antagonisms than to uh, offer them ways of thinking about how we can constructively build I mean a the world. triggers. I mean the triggers that you're talking about. Well, which triggers? I mean... Well, like you were just talking about like uh, the social science aspect. A sense of empowerment. Yeah, but I, I mostly mean like the, figuring out the triggers that, that make people, you know, feel things and to take action. Like media used to be about... Um, you know, you had a point of view and you wanted to express it. And now, you know, media is a lot about, you know, figuring out the data and like how you can get people to take um, specific actions, whether it's click or actually feel things and things of that nature in order to share them. Um, it would seem to me that like everyone like had said all this stuff was going to be good, but then when it's used for different purposes, all of a sudden it's bad. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at, uh, there's a great essay by Umberto Eco from 1979 or something, which talks about sort of the classic form of demagoguery. And what's interesting to me is that, um, you know, this is pre our modern media ecosystem. But if you look at, um, you know, that essay about how, uh, how demagogues relate to the truth and how they relate to the media, you could, you could just take it into this moment and it exactly describes the way that Trump relates to media and the way that, um, you know, the alt-right media works. Like the, the, the core thesis is that, um, you know, the way that, uh, that, uh, demagogues relate to truth is that, um, it's a power struggle. It's who gets to assert what is true. And, uh, that that's part of the game of dominance that they're playing essentially. So I guess I think that there there's always been this relationship between how power uses media and storytelling to achieve its ends. And demagogues have always been pretty good at using media to trigger something, some particular sort of feelings and emotions long before social media. Um, but I think the question is, you know, how do you use storytelling to get people talking together, to get people talking across, um, you know, across lines. And to me, a world in which you have a Trump who's very good at stirring up people's fears and their, their worst ideas about each other. And you don't have uh, a media that's interested in how do we actually, like if, if you have a Trump and then you have um, a bunch of white papers, like that's not a good setup for a democratic society. You need actually, you know, a set of media that are going to fight for 
a, a way of engaging with each other and a way of thinking about the world that is constructive. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, there's almost an abdication in saying like, well, yeah, he's manipulating people into being fearful and hateful of each other, but we're just going to focus on, um, you know, writing copy um, and not think about the way that that actually creates an engaged citizenry. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people cited the filter bubble after the election, um, and it was done sort of offhand. We have filter bubbles, basically, <laughs> and right. that's it. What were people missing when they were just sort of offhandedly um, citing it uh, as an explanation for the inexplicable? Well, I mean, I think... One thing they were missing, I mean, I found myself in a funny space with that conversation because there was a way, I, I actually don't believe that, there There were some people who were saying Trump won because of the filter bubble or because of right. social media. I don't think that's true. Like, I, I don't I don't believe that a candidate- I think a lot of people wish it was true. I think that's totally right. And I think this gets again to the like, how the people who are having that conversation consume media versus how most people are consuming media. Because I think for, again, you and me and folks who are in kind of the coastal media ecosystem, um, social is an important vehicle to seeing news. But for, uh, you know, older white men in the Midwest who, um, you know, who are not college educated, they're not on Twitter they're probably not very much on Facebook, but they're listening to a ton of talk radio. They're listening to a ton of Fox News. And that's actually the delivery vehicle. So I think that the the filter bubble explains a lot about how people like me didn't see how powerful Trump could be. Because... Were you surprised? That Trump, that Trump won? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I trusted the same kind of opinion gatekeepers that a lot of people did and didn't. And I think I also wanted to believe that that was true. Like I, I I didn't, I didn't want to believe that someone who I felt was so bigoted could win. Um, and, um, I think, uh, but I think that's the filter bubble that's popped in a way. (laughs) Um, not, uh, Mm -hmm. not that his followers were, um, surrounded by social media, uh, and therefore mm-hmm. they lost touch with the truth. Like it's very easy to be out of touch with the truth listening to talk radio. So since then, media has broadly occupied an occupational or, or oppositional role to Trump. I think you know, broadly speaking, and there's a lot of people are wondering why is this not having an impact? And they're going back to the filter bubble. They're saying like mm-hmm. all this this drumbeat of of, of evidence of, of, of the bigotry that you're talking about, um, possible malfeasance with, with Russia, um, just a litany of things that the media has been uncovering and they've gotten a couple of things wrong. Um, and they're explaining it by the filter bubble that let the people, or do you, it sounds like you're saying like this, it's actually just demagoguery that, that explains this, not any sort of, um, complicated. I think that, yeah. I mean, I think that the number one, thing is human beings are very susceptible to strongman demagogic like we all are and um there are some people in the country right now for a variety of reasons are even more susceptible and that trumps the structure of media i i think um 
But then I would also say, um, you know, there is a very powerful media delivery system that that is outside of the view of most people who are consuming a lot of New York Times and Washington Post articles, which is this like conservative media structure, which includes social media, but isn't that's not like most right. of where people are are consuming media. Um, but I think there's also I, I think um, one of the things that's becoming evident is that how people come to believe what's true is not the way that we kind of learned it in civics class. And and this gets back in a way to this question of kind of, is it, like I, I felt like you were sort of saying like, um, once you take the behavioral science genie out of the bottle, like. Well, I mean, the, generally, like, I mean, you saw with, with the, the um, with the things you were doing with headlines and stuff like this, like, I mean, tactics get co-opted and they get used, um, in a lot of different ways. I mean, this totally. is, you know, the, the stuff that, that I guess the organizing tactics that, that the Democrats used to, to make Barack Obama possible were then used to make Donald Trump possible. So, I mean, it's, it's usually these things get broadly applied. Yeah, no. And, and I think my, my point is, I think if you don't have a thoughtful view of, how people internalize and use information, mm-hmm. then it's hard to do your job well as media. And I think one of the things that we're seeing in the Trump moment is that um, the the number one thing that people care about is whether they trust the person who's speaking. And the number two thing they care about is, are is that person being factually accurate? Like trust comes before facts. And, um, that has a whole set of ramifications for media that's trying to provide people with the truth. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we need to reckon with that. We can't like say like, well, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna write the article the way I see it and hope for the best. Yeah. So is Facebook getting too much blame? It's a hard question. I mean, I think it, if you're Mark Zuckerberg, it's like you woke up one morning and you like are the mayor of a town and people are coming to you saying like the garbage isn't getting collected and the water smells funny. And you're like, I, I just woke up and like, I didn't want to be mayor of this town. I just ended up being mayor of this town. Is it his responsibility? Like, yeah, he owns a huge chunk of the media and, and that's kind of complicated because I don't think he meant to have that responsibility. I don't think he was even mm-hmm. looking to have that responsibility. So I think by virtue of consolidating the structure of the media so much like it's not wrong to focus on Facebook. But I also think that if we don't think about, like I think that Facebook alone can't solve these problems and that if we don't think about how you actually address the way that people are internalizing information and deciding what's true, like you could have Facebook could do everything right and we wouldn't have solved that problem. Are you in favor of governmental regulation of some degree? Yeah. I mean, I always find that question sort of funny because it's like there is all sorts of government governmental. Well, I guess the big one is, will they will they have the um, yeah, I mean, all companies have regulation, but uh, will they be regulated as a media company or as a utility even? Well, I mean, again, it's like you can't run uh, deceitful ads on Facebook, not because Facebook says not to, but because that's against, you know, advertising regulations. So, um, so my, my point is just like, 
it's not an either or, or like, I think we've already decided that there's a bunch of lines that people shouldn't cross, uh, when you, when you're an advertising company and Facebook should, should follow them. Um, and in a lot of cases, they're not even doing that. I mean, I think if you look at political advertising, it's mm-hmm. only since this is all blown up that you could see who paid for political ads, which you can in other mediums. Like it's not as if, uh, like what we said a norm actually that you should know who's doing a political ab- advertisement, but for a variety of reasons that didn't apply to Facebook. So my point is like, I think that question almost suggests like this is some big new step that would break the internet to, to apply regulation. But I think actually most parts of most businesses and most parts of the internet that Mm -hmm. we know and love are regulated to some extent. And so should Facebook. Right. Right. But, but I mean, some people are calling for them to be broken up and all sorts of more onerous onerous steps. You know, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't call for that. I think there's a pretty good case actually, um, uh, that some of the kind of libertarian commentators are making that Facebook shouldn't be able to buy other social networks, um, which because the powers of scale are so strong, um, that's an interesting conversation that smarter people than me could could have. But um, but I think that there's an enormous, I mean, we've never seen a company like Facebook in terms of accumulating human attention and holding it. And there's an enormous amount of power mm-hmm. there and the idea that but does that worry you or it sounds like you're you're going with it because that's the environment as as it is as a citizen yeah it does worry me totally i mean i think w- my point is we can't like pretend it's not happening right so uh so we've got to deal with it as this is the way that a lot a lot of people are receiving their media and then also you know i've been pretty vocal about uh, and critical of of the way that facebook's done things obviously it's got to be tricky. It's surprisingly, I mean, it's not that complicated um, because uh, I, I've never felt that me being critical of the way that Facebook operates would result in retaliation. I've always thought that that seemed like a far-fetched conspiracy. A, yeah, a conspiracy <laughs> and a really bad move on their part. Okay, cool. We're going to leave it there. Eli, thank you so much. Cool. Thanks for having me on. Uh, And thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And before I leave, I want to remind you that you should subscribe to Digiday Plus. That's our membership product. You'll be in the know about the industry at all times, I promise. We are working on our new magazine issue. You'll also get a steady stream of exclusive research, access to our Slack community, and invites to member events like our live podcast event, Today, that is January 24th, with Bleacher Report CRO Howard Mittman. We're having that at their offices here in New York City. All of this is only $395 a year. And for you, our podcast listeners, there's a 25% discount. Just enter the code PODCAST at checkout. To subscribe, uh, visit us at digiday.com, and you'll see Digiday Plus uh, in the menu bar. Just hit that, um, and you will be able to subscribe there. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode.